0: Oh, Father, we would acknowledge together as a congregation that that is indeed a a wonderful and a matchless name, that name Jesus. Father, this Christmas season, even with the familiarity of the story, and um, it seems like we just know it so well, I pray that you would speak to us through uh, the great revelation of Jesus Christ coming to be born of Mary, to go to the cross, to be our Savior, to rise again that third day, authenticating His role as Messiah, as Lord of the universe, as Savior from sin. Speak to us, Father. Encourage us. Strengthen us. We recognize that we live in a pretty broken world, and uh, the Christmas season is pretty broken as well. It's highly distracting and um, in great disarray, and so bring focus and clarity that Jesus Christ would be our purpose. Jesus Christ would be who we worship and that we would be renewed and refreshed by the Christmas story, as familiar as it is. We commit ourselves to the hearing and the doing of the Word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've ever been a part of or witnessed a broken engagement. Um, It's difficult. I was about 10 or 11 years old when one of my older sisters came dashing through the door of our house, through the kitchen, up the stairs. She was screaming. She was wailing. The door slammed and she was across her bed. And there she wailed and cried. And my parents tried to calm her. Her fiancé had been unfaithful to her and their engagement was off. She had given the ring back and life was coming unglued. I tell you, to a 10- or 11-year-old boy, uh, that was an eye-opener. I decided right then and there, I'm never getting married. (laughs) That lasted about seven or eight years more. And uh, it wasn't that long I changed my mind. But anyway, that's another story. As we look into Matthew chapter 1 this morning, and we pick up the Christmas story, as familiar as it is, we need to be careful not to overlook the incredible emotion that is embedded in the story. As we begin our story, we're going to encounter Joseph. We're going to try to to cover, uh, we will be repeating part of it, but we're going to get through the rest of chapter 1, and I want to read through all of chapter 2 today as well, because I want you to see how Matthew uses a writing technique to tell the Christmas story. Let's remind ourselves of a couple things. Matthew was writing to A, a Gentile audience, or B, a Jewish audience. B, a Jewish audience. You have to remember that. One of the things that you're going to see, things that, that don't necessarily ring a bell with us, things that they don't mean that much to us in our Western mind, and far removed from the tradition and the culture, as well as a limited knowledge of the Old Testament, compared to his first century audience... Those to whom Matthew wrote, and it was particularly a Jewish audience, and remember what he was writing for. He was writing to show them that Jesus was the King, that He's the Messiah. He's the one for whom you've been waiting. And so what I want you to see today, that as Matthew writes... One of the things he's doing, as he has now finished the genealogy, and remember this this remarkable genealogy that that Matthew laid out, and if you weren't here last week, you missed it. Um, We had the early service. I guess you have to get online and pick up, but we're going to move on. Early service got the genealogy message, and uh, you can talk to them. They might say, it's a good thing you missed that one. But um, the genealogy is there to prove that Jesus not only through Joseph, had a legal right to David's throne and therefore qualified to be Messiah, but Jesus also had a biological or a lineage, a heritage right to the throne through Mary. Um, Most Bible students would agree that Matthew's genealogy spells out the genealogical uh, chronology of the generations of Joseph and that Luke spells out Mary's heritage and Mary's uh, lineage. And um, that you'll see that it says the, the father of Joseph in Luke, where it, where it gives his name, and the father of Joseph in Matthew's genealogy are two different names. And many people believe, which was part of the accepted norm of the day, that listed in the genealogy, Luke did not list women, Matthew did, and that Luke listed Mary's father, Joseph's father-in-law, as his father. There's a number of other interesting items in the genealogy, but what Matthew has has done is laid down a foundation and understanding for the, for the Jewish community there in Israel that, okay, the first thing we want to check off our list is that Jesus fits the genealogy. He qualifies. Now, the second thing Matthew's going to do, and it's why I want to go all the way through chapter 2, he's going to do something that would have rung a bell with, with his audience. It's, it's, it's something that even if you've read the story over and over, I know you've noticed parts of it, but you might not recognize that what Matthew has done is he has taken five prophetic statements from the Old Testament, which the Jewish community would have had complete understanding of. They, they knew their history. They would have understood what Jeremiah was talking about. They would have understood what Hosea was talking about. But what Matthew's going to do is take five out of 320 320 Old Testament prophecies. Matthew's going to take five and say, let me show you how five of those prophecies all come together and they land right on the Messiah. There are not many Christs. There are not many ways to God. There is one Messiah. It is this Messiah. He's right here in our community. Don't miss it. And we have a little bit of the same issue today. All roads lead to wherever you want them to lead, right? Everybody's right. You believe what you want to believe, that's truth for you. You believe what you want to believe, that's truth for you. I'll believe what I want to believe, that's truth for me. That's utter nonsense. Truths cannot contradict, right? And and there's only one God and mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus himself said that he alone was the way, the truth, and and the life. Listen. Listen. One thing Christianity is not. One thing the gospel of Jesus Christ is not. It is not one of many ways to get to God. It is an exclusive and only way to get to God. Now the Jews have been waiting for Messiah. And, they're, and they need clarity. They need clarity. And so Matthew in essence is going to take the the last part of chapter 1, the first all of chapter 2, he's going to use these five prophetic passages and he's going to show them and he's using them really for an outline for his story. So let me let me show you these prophecies and let me show you how they come true and really do you know the word apologetic? He's writing as if it were an apologetic, a defense He wants to show them, I'm showing you from the Old Testament that you all have grown up under, you've studied it all your life, you've memorized it, and I'm showing you now what it means. And that it all points to Messiah, and that it's all about your salvation. But what did the Jews do? They nailed him to a cross, didn't they? They missed it. A lot of people today still miss it. And by the way, let's remind ourselves what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 22. What do the Jews require? The Jews require a sign. Do you remember Paul said that? Jews want a sign. They want proof. He said there, but that the Greeks, they, they seek after logic and wisdom. But the Jews, doesn't have to be so logical necessarily, they need to have a sign. In this passage, there's going to be some signs. A virgin birth, a star in the heaven... Wise men with gifts. Here's your sign. You want a sign? Here he is. So let me tell you a little bit how I want to structure our message, because we're not going to read through the whole passage and then go back and break it down like we normally do. We're going to kind of give a running commentary as we go, but you need to keep up with it a little bit. And some of you who are note-takers, we're going to try to organize our thoughts in three columns. I think that three columns will work better in your mind for a three-point outline rather than three layers like we normally think of an outline as we read one of the things i want you to see in the story is how many of the parties involved as and remember matthew's explaining the birth of christ he's laid the foundation with the genealogy now here how here's how he was born here's how and so he's going to tell the jewish audience And one of the things he's going to note, and you'll you'll be interested to see, the number of people in the story who at times in their lives or at moments in the story lack clarity. And so column number one or point number one of our outline is actually titled, Confusing Questions That Result From Limited Information. Confusing questions, limited information. But what you're going to see almost right away is that God will give them Column number two, or point number two, clear answers from special revelation. He's going to give some clear answers from special revelation. Note in the story as we go that five times there's going to be an interruption in people's lives. And God, almost each time, through an angel in a dream, is going to give special revelation. So where they start out with a lack of clarity and confusion, God's going to give special revelation. And it's going to kind of be, oh, okay, okay. And it's going to end, and then there's going to be five more times, third column or third point, where it's going to be an explanation of the prophets. And we'll call that confident assurance, confident assurance from prophetic explanation. So we're going to go from confusing questions and limited information to clear answers from a special revelation, five times that's going to happen, and five times Matthew is going to give confident assurance to the Jews that this is the Messiah from prophetic explanation, taking Old Testament prophets and explaining how this is the Christ. It's pretty interesting stuff. We're going to have to fly to get through it. And then what I would like to do as I studied the passage and, 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 and it unfolded, One of the things that encouraged my heart were just some of the actual spiritual lessons that came out of it. And I'd like to share four of those real quick at the end of the message that apply to our lives. As you think about Mary and Joseph, as you think about the wise men and all the distance that they came and how God was revealing himself to them, as you think about wicked Herod, and basically in the story, you cannot overstate how wicked and godless this guy was, how hateful he was. It's just really interesting characters. Now, as we begin, we have this disaster of a broken engagement that I started reminding us of at the beginning. Think about how emotional it must have been. Think about how life-altering. Remember now, Joseph, point number one, is our first character that we run into who has limited information. Let's get into the text, let's read the story, and let's remind ourselves of these things as they unfold together. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Let's just stop right there and understand what's happening. Some Bibles might say that he was, they were engaged To be married, we think of an engagement. This is a betrothal. One of the things that raises a question then is, why did he have to divorce her again? Matthew's first century Jewish audience would have understood exactly what was happening. You need to understand what a big deal it was that this man Joseph had found a wife. He had negotiated a deal with her father. He had uh, brought the whole thing together. They had actually written out legal documents and the thing was a done deal. They were as good as married, but there were some other traditional things that had to take place. One was a waiting period until the actual wedding ceremony, wedding feast and consummation night of the honeymoon and part of the reason for that was to make sure that they weren't getting married because they had been hanky-panking ahead of time and that she was not pregnant and everybody needed to know that the bride was pure that was very important in those days and so this was a legal binding betrothal or engagement that was so binding that you actually had to go back through their legal system and get a divorce to separate the thing you couldn't, you couldn't go through all this. Tell this girl's father you were going to build a house, create a home, bring her in as your wife on the timeline. You couldn't then just back out. You couldn't just take a ring off and throw it at him. You had to go through this whole legal proceeding and other people were involved. Your parents were involved. It was a big deal. Now here's Joseph. Think about the ton of bricks that just fell on his life. See, he has limited information. He's our number one character. He has limited information. And until God gives him special revelation, he's not going to know what's happening. He thinks it's over. He thinks that every plan that he has laid is shot. He thinks that he's wasted his time. He's utterly confused. He's brokenhearted. I don't know that he wailed. I wouldn't be surprised a tear slid down his cheek and splashed onto his carpenter's bench. Is he just so frustrated? What's going on? I don't know what's happening. But we see also the wonderful character of this man. Girls, this is the kind of guy you want to marry a guy that even if he doesn't understand you and even if he thinks you've done him wrong, he doesn't want to embarrass or humiliate you. He loved her so much, he cared for her so much, that he decided, did you notice it said, to put her away privately or to just have a private divorce and to keep this thing as hush-hush as possible. Maybe she would be sent off as she ends up in Luke. We know that she ends up out in, the, out in the country at her cousin Elizabeth's house. Just stay there, and she did stay there for an extended time, no doubt, to cover the embarrassment of her obvious pregnancy, though she was not married officially. So Joseph is confused, he's frustrated, he doesn't know what to do. Here he is, and then he says he was unwilling to put her to shame. Technically, according to the Old Testament, which everyone would have known in this audience, she could have been had capital punishment. She could have been stoned for that. Historical records don't show a lot of that happening, and by this era especially, that they didn't necessarily follow through with that, but it certainly was not an acceptable thing, and it, and it wasn't looked the other way. It was huge. Well, Joseph certainly didn't want capital punishment brought down on Mary. He certainly didn't want her to become the gossip or the talk of the community, and so this just man, this godly, righteous man, is cooking up a plan whereby he can get her out of the limelight and let her get through this pregnancy, and then we'll just figure out what's happening. All of his plans are over. Limited information. You've been there, haven't you? What in the world are you doing now, Lord? I don't have a clue what I'm supposed to do right now. This is not how I thought things would unfold. Well, let's read on because look what's going to happen. Being a just man, in the middle of verse 19, unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. But, verse 20, as he considered these things, here's our, our first moment. Of of clarity, a clear answer from special revelation, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Oh, that's really helpful. (laughs) Can you imagine? Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me that she is now pregnant. And there's no man involved, but it's God Himself through the Holy Spirit. And that this, and then it's coming together in Joseph's mind. This is, this is Messiah. This is it. This is what we've been longing for. This is what we sing songs for. This is what we memorize the prophets for. Longing for an ultimate deliverer. Longing for Messiah. Joseph's got to process all this stuff. But God gives him just enough information. God gives him just the word that he needed. Now, let's stop for just a minute because here's what people always want to know. Okay, we're going to see five times in this passage where God speaks to somebody through a dream and almost always through an angel in a dream. And so what's the obvious question? Does God still speak to people in dreams? Now, it's real tempting to just say, no, no. He speaks to us, how? Through His Word. And we believe... We have a sufficient word. By saying a sufficient word, we're saying that it is complete. God didn't leave anything out. And all of that we need for life and godliness, Peter says, is right here in the book. And all of the advice and counsel we need for discerning God's will is right here in the book. You don't need to look further. You don't need to look outside of God's word to discern God's will. But we don't talk that way. And in reality, don't we have to admit that if the Holy Spirit is in us, and we're walking with God, and we're studying the Word, that sometimes, here's the word we use, God speaks to us, right? say, God spoke to me. Well, what did God say to you? You know, I don't know how this works. I don't want to embarrass him. But one of my favorite stories is Chris Martin over here, just back from Sandy Storm. And Chris comes home from work one day, and his wife Deanna looks at him and says, Honey, I need to talk to you. And Chris says, You're going to give Janet Marceau a kidney, aren't you? She said, How did you know? He said, God told me at work today. (laughs) I don't know what God's voice was. I don't think he heard a voice. I don't know what he had for lunch, if he had indigestion. All right, and the reason that's one of my favorite stories is because that kidney is now be- fun- functioning beautifully inside of our piano player this morning, my lovely wife. That's a great story, isn't it? Over five years ago. So what happened there? Did God speak to Chris and Diana? They were praying about something that they knew. They had limited information. They didn't know what to do. But then God puts a, we also use the phrase, a burden on my heart, right? And so then God uses these things, and then all of a sudden we find clarity. Well, is it possible that you could lie down to sleep one night and be meditating and wondering about God's will? Do I go to, you know, am I going to, am I going to, you know, what am I going to do? Am I going to go to this school? Am I going to go to this school? Should I, what should I do? Should I break up with this guy or not? And what should I do? And, and, um, you know, whatever the circumstances, should I buy the blue truck or the red truck? What do I do? And so then you have a dream. And you're driving this red truck down the road, and your head's great, and, and the Lord's blessing you. And, and so you wake up and you go by the red truck. Did God speak to you? I, I have no idea. But the Bible clearly uses dreams as a vehicle for God to speak to people at a time when there was limited revelation. And so I would say that the norm is that God doesn't do that very often. I have heard stories of people, even people, someone was reminding me in the foyer after the first service, of how people, like in Muslim countries, where a person, an individual is seeking God, and they have a dream, and God makes himself known through Christ in a dream. And where there's limited revelation, God will speak in some ways like that. I think you have to be really careful. I mean, you wake up in the morning, start pecking the kitchen! I had a dream that I was shooting a big bull elk in Montana and that I'm supposed to quit my job and and there was a log cabin in my dream and we're going to go to Montana and we're going to live off the land and I'm going to get to hunt the rest of my life. God just told me in a dream. Praise God, let's go. (laughs) You're nuts. (laughs) You're nuts. I doubt that God told you that. Every once in a while, though, you're convinced... What did God tell us, though? He said in Proverbs that in a multitude of counselors there's safety. You know? He said his word is a light unto our path, a lamp unto our path, and a light unto our way. You see? So the word of God is sufficient. It's not lacking. And so know that when when you want to know God's will, you need the word of God. Just like Joseph needed the word of God in his life to know the will of God. And until he had the word of God in his life, he didn't know the will of God. He's going to divorce her. He's going to put her out in the country. He's going to go start a new life. He's going to look for a new wife. Everything's exploding around him until he got a word from the Lord. Our word from the Lord, you look for it, comes off these pages. Every once in a while, God might use a dream to stir your heart. But God is not giving new revelation. God is not giving people new information. He might might use a dream to give us information that he's already given us. Or that you might believe is to buy a red truck instead of a blue truck. But you better walk really carefully there. But, I do want to acknowledge that... There is a part of our Christianity and our Christian life and our prayer life where we believe God speaks to us. But it's not extra biblical. It's not, I mean, it's not, it's not like a word. It's not inspired, inerrant scripture like that. It's direction and answer to prayer is the way he speaks to us. All right, I hope that's helpful a little bit. Um, so don't start a new dream ministry or something like that. So here he is, okay, column number one, Joseph, struggling with limited information, now has first of our five cases in our story of extra, of, of special revelation, and the angel comes to him and says, and let's read that again, verse 20, because we've digressed so long, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, verse 20, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary, calm down, quiet your heart. For, what, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There it is. The light's flashing on. He understands what's supposed to happen. All this took place. Here's column number three, or point three in our outline, okay? Here we go. This is confident assurance from a prophetic explanation All this took place, verse 22, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And here it is. He's now going to quote a very familiar passage to his Jewish audience, Isaiah 7.14. And it says this. Verse 23 of Matthew is a direct quote from Isaiah 7.14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's a name that we don't see used for Jesus any other place but it's the idea that God is going to tabernacle with us. God is going to dwell with us. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name, Jesus, exactly the way the angel told him. There it is. So, what was happening back in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. What's the context there? I'll tell you quickly because we're going to need to run. There was a king in Israel at the time. The kingdom was divided. Things were coming unglued. Whenever you're reading Isaiah and Jeremiah, you're reading about the last gasping breath of the Israelites before the ultimate dispersion. The northern kingdom is already in Nebuchadnezzar's power. He's going to come in and get the, the southern two tribes... This is the time, uh, basically understand it, as the time of Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego. Remember those guys? And how Nebuchadnezzar would come sweeping down. He would capture young Jewish young people, tear things up, destroy neighborhoods, knock apart the temple, steal all of their valuables, steal their young people, and then take them up into what is present-day Iraq, Baghdad, Iraq area. Okay? Okay? In Isaiah chapter 7, there's a king, he's probably the worst of the worst, his name is Ahaz. And Ahaz figures out that he's in trouble because uh, some other kings in the neighborhood are going to attack him again. And so instead of going to God for protection, he goes to another pagan king, I think one of the Syrian kings there, and he goes to him and he says, will you help protect me from all these guys that are going to attack me again? So Isaiah goes to him and says, you need to knock this off. You need to stop looking at pagan kings next door for your protection. And you need to look to God who's going to protect you and put his hand upon you. And if you seek God, he'll take care of you. Ahaz doesn't believe him, even though Isaiah says, and there's going to be a sign, a child will be born, and it's going to be a special kind of child, born of a virgin, back there he uses the phrase that he will be Emmanuel, God with us, concept, son of the highest, at some level, it's possible that Isaiah was talking, if you read a few more verses, like uh, 7 verse 20 in Isaiah, he gives a funny name. I forget his name, I should have written it down. Jim Shoopy knows it, probably he likes to say that name of Isaiah's son. It was a, It was talking about a son that was going to be born to Isaiah, that would be a sign. Obviously that son was not virgin born. That son is not God with us, but the idea was that that son will make a, make note in your mind that God is with us and you don't have to go to these foreign kings. Okay. So now Matthew to his Jewish audience is is explaining that what Isaiah was really talking about was that God is really going to be with us. And that's something they would have understood because the very word tabernacle, for example, and the, and the Israelites knew what it meant to have a tabernacle. Some of you know from the book of Leviticus and Numbers and so forth, all of the instruction in Deuteronomy that was given when they were in the wilderness, they had a tabernacle. Remember, it was made out of animal skins, and it had gold-covered panels, and it had an outer cord, and they had an inner cord, and you had the the laver and you had the candlesticks and you had um, the Ark of the Covenant and you had the inner holy of holies where once a year the high priest would go and meet directly with God. Well, they would set this big thing up. It was nothing other than a type of Christ. That is a, a forerunning illustration of the presence of Christ to represent God among the people. They called it a tabernacle. So if I said to you, hey, I'm coming to your house, I'm going to tabernacle with you a while. It basically means I'm going to set up my tent. I'm going to pitch my tent and dwell with you. So the tabernacle itself was a statement about God with us. In the wilderness itself, remember when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, they had a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, whereby they understood what? They understood that that was the presence of God with them. They called that the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory, an aura, the presence of God. So they understood from their own history that God did dwell among them. But now, Matthew is telling them, I'm telling you from Isaiah's prophecy, that there's a son going to be born. He's going to be born of a virgin. The virgin's name is Mary. Joseph's going to take care of her. They're going to name him Jesus because his name is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is God saves us. He saved. Jehovah saves. And he's going to be there. He's going to save his people from their sin. And he's going to tabernacle with us. He's going to put on a tent of flesh. He's going to dwell among us. That's what John said, right? John said he came to dwell among us. To be among his own. But what did they do? What did Matthew's audience do? 33 years later, this group is going to do what? Nail him to a cross. They're going to reject him, even though he gave the Jews a sign. There's our first set. Joseph, limited information, then receiving special revelation, and then having a prophetic explanation. So let's hurry and read through, because we have four more of those layers, and we can do it. Yes, we can. (laughs) Chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Herod was a wicked guy, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? There's limited information from the wise men. Limited information. These guys are wandering around following a star. We don't know much about the star. They had studied the heavens enough to know and they had some special revelation along the way somewhere to know that they were supposed to try to seek that star and that that was going to be indicative of God meeting with men. That God was sending a king. And so they follow it with the limited information they have, and they come to Herod, and they said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And when Herod, verse 3, chapter 2, the king heard this, he was troubled. That means he, he was very anxious. And then it says, And all Jerusalem with him. See, Herod was such a wicked leader that if he was upset, the whole community was upset. If he was happy, everybody's happy. If he's sad, everybody's sad. He makes sure of it. We don't have time to explore. Secular history sheds a lot of light on this guy. He was wicked. He was, a, he was a pagan Gentile. He didn't deserve to be the king over the Jewish people. He didn't qualify genealogically. He was not of the line of David. He was not supposed to sit on the throne. Everybody hated him of the Jews. They couldn't stand him. He was very wicked. He, killed, he did mass murders of them. This is the guy that the famous story Josephus tells, the historian tells, about this guy that when he was, when he was realizing that he was going to die and Josephus says that his intestines got eaten up with worms and uh, that warm baths couldn't even soothe it and that he died a grotesque death, a, a horrible, painful death. That when he was dying, being eaten up by these worms, that he told the whole community, he told his, his rangers to go line up all of the leaders of the community, the doctors, the lawyers, and people like that, that were important in the community, put them in jail, and the moment he died, kill him with the sword so that there would be wailing in the community when he died because he knew nobody would cry for him. You talk about an egomaniac and just a, a, a guy who's just out of control. That's this guy. All right, so he's very threatened and insecure. The wise men come to him, and Herod himself has limited information. So notice what he does. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So Herod himself gets the people who studied, the scribes who studied the Old Testament, and he wants to know, tell me what you know about where he's to be born. And then they tell him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and here's Matthew's second prophetic explanation, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for you, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's from Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. And Bethlehem was Hicksville. Bethlehem was just a little town, but guess who grew up there? David grew up there. It's where Jacob buried his wife, Rachel. There's a lot of historical things that happened there. By this time, when Matthew wrote, his audience would have known that Bethlehem is also known as the town or city of David, and it's referenced like that in Scripture. You know that phrase even. And so, prophetic explanation number two is that you need to know that what Micah was talking about was really the the king that would come out of Bethlehem as Messiah, then Herod verse seven summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, "Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too that I too may come and worship him uh-huh. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gifts uh, representative of, of different ministries in Christ's life. Myrrh representing death. Gold, representing his kingliness. Frankincense, being a prophet. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. There it is, there's special revelation to the wise men. And being warned in a dream, maybe an angel, doesn't say an angel here, but here's our second group of guys. The wise men who received special revelation, and Matthew's using this as a writing technique. Five special revelations, five prophetic explanations to build his story. Somebody asked me after the first service, why did Mary and Joseph, if they only came to Bethlehem to be registered in the census, why, did they, why were they still in Bethlehem probably up to a year later or some months later following the wise men's visit?" And I don't know how long it was exactly, but my answer, whether it's right or not, I don't know. But I thought it was a pretty good answer off my top of my head, was, she just had a baby. Would you want to travel back home? And so Joseph got him a little apartment, a little house. He rented, he probably could work there a little bit, and they ended up staying, maybe longer than they thought. Maybe they had relatives there as well. And there they were, letting Mary heal, getting some strength, getting the baby ready to travel. So these incredible wise men from what would be present-day Iran, they were Persian, bringing their gifts. It was probably a huge entourage, maybe with soldier guards, many animals, huge. That might be partly why all of Jerusalem was troubled as well, to see this huge entourage come marching into this little town. What the world's hair up to now. What's going on? Well, here we go. Now when they had departed, the wise men departed, verse 13. Here's... Special revelation number three, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. So Joseph receives this information. Wicked Herod wants to find the kid, the baby and kill him, the king. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. That's a loaded sentence right there. I mean, we read right through that. When's the last time, ladies, that your husband shook you awake in the middle of the night, told you, don't tell anybody, get the baby pack, let's get out of here, we got to go, and then out in the backyard's a donkey that you have to get on, and off you go, and it's 70 miles to the border in Egypt, and then another 100 miles probably down into Egypt, for probably a total journey of about 170 miles, on foot and by donkey, in the night, hiding by day, going in the dark, This is not. this is not a fun trip. This is something we don't do. Precious Mary did it. I'm sure Joseph did everything he could to take care of her. He received this special revelation that the child was in danger. But notice, here we go. We have our, our third prophetic explanation. This was to fill what this was to fulfill, verse 15. What the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. That's Hosea chapter 11, verse one. What's happening in Hosea chapter 11, verse one? In Hosea, that's the story of Hosea and Gomer, where God told his man Hosea, his prophet Hosea, to go marry a prostitute named Gomer and chase her around in her unfaithfulness to be a living illustration of how much he loved Israel, who was unfaithful to him all the time, going a-whoring after other gods. They end up in Egypt as a consequence of that. And in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, when Hosea wrote that my son shall come out of Egypt, it was God talking about Israel at large and that they would come up out of Egypt. But Matthew says the reason he wrote that down is because my son, the Lord Jesus, will come up out of Egypt. That, so this is what it is. The Israelites in captivity in Egypt, coming up out of Egypt, are literally, and some of you will know more what I'm talking about than others, a literal type of Christ. They were in a forward illustration of what Jesus would do, and nobody even knew that's what it was. It was a picture of something that was to come. And Matthew says, there it is. He's talking about his son Israel. I'm talking about my son Messiah, and he will come up out of Egypt. And so it is to fulfill what Hosea 11.1 said, and nobody even knew that Hosea 11.1 was a prophecy until Matthew says it. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, verse 16 became furious and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or, or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So he kind of figured out a window of time, decided to wipe out all the young children. Then was fulfilled. Here's our fourth prophetic explanation. Then, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. He's quoting Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. In what's happening in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15? You need to know that Ramah was a, was a town that was situated strategically so that when Nebuchadnezzar was coming in and swooping down and, and taking Israelites captive years before, remember Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego days, in that era, when Nebuchadnezzar was coming down as God's judgment from the north, judging his people because of their careless, um, their careless idolatry and turning their hearts away from him, that Ramah was a staging area for all these young people where they'd shackle them together and get them hooked up in a train and walk them up into what is present-day Baghdad, Iraq. And so in Ramah, right there, where they assembled all these young people, Rachel is a word for all the women of Israel. Rachel was wailing. What's that? It could have been Daniel's mother herself could have watched as they tied Daniel up with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the, in the land there around Ramah, where they were assembling them, getting them ready to take them into captivity, and the mothers would watch, because they didn't take the old women with them, the mothers with them, they didn't need them. They needed all the young people. They let them just live in the land, and they had puppet governments that they would put up over them. And so, so Rachel would wail all the mothers of Israel termed Rachel here, would wail as they watched their young men being marched off. How would you like your 14, 15, 16-year-old son in ankle shackles, tied to a chain, tied behind a camel with armed guards from Nebuchadnezzar's army and out of Ramah, there they go. And that's the last time you saw him was out of Ramah. And so the women wailed. Every Israelite knew this story. Every Israelite knew their history. Every Israelite young person knew exactly who Nebuchadnezzar was and what happened at Ramah and what they meant when Rachel wailed. But look what Matthew says. Verse 17. Nobody even knew that Jeremiah was making a prophecy Jeremiah 31.15, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, that Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel was weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And that was illustrative of when Herod killed some babies in that region, and the mothers wailed when the soldiers came and grabbed their babies and whacked them. Right in front of them, probably. Secular history doesn't record this account. So some skeptics will point to the New Testament and say, that never really happened. It's likely that it probably wasn't as widespread. How many babies do you have to kill in Ramo in one night by soldiers in front of their mommies to have wailing? Three? Thirteen? How many would you have to have to have history, histo- uh, history recorded? In secular history, it probably wasn't that widespread, and maybe the soldiers themselves didn't even want to carry it out. So maybe they did the minimal amount of babies. There was some wailing in Ramah, but there it was. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. There it is. Special revelation. Special revelation number four, an angel appears to Joseph in Egypt, they're down in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and they went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. So Joseph is still suspicious. He said, wait a minute, this is just one of Herod's sons, he's cut from the same cloth, I don't want to take my... baby there they might kill messiah there try to kill him they know they, they remember the story and here it is special revelation number five being warned in a dream he withdrew to the district of galilee and he went and lived in a city called nazareth and here it is prophetic explanation number five so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a nazarene now what old testament passage is that it's not in our old testament Bible students don't know whose prophecy that was. But clearly, Matthew understood that his audience understood that that was a well-known, well-believed prophecy. Everybody knew it, and that's why he could write it to his audience. Even though there's no Old Testament reference, one of the prophets was attributed to saying it, a prophet that we have a scripture from, or another godly prophet, and that was a well-known prophecy that out of Nazareth would come The Messiah, and that he would be a Nazarene, and there it was fulfilled before their eyes. So Matthew, in an apologetic manner, is looking to the Jews and says, You want a sign? I'm giving you five signs. Here they are, in prophetic explanation, five Old Testament prophecies that are all coming new, coming true, right here in Messiah. It's pretty neat, isn't it? See how all this comes together? How God had a plan all along? You know what it's really all about? Here it is. You don't know much about your Bible, and you say, I don't know, how, how do you get all that stuff? I don't know, you read thick books with small print. Here's what it's all about. Will you say it with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's what all this is about right here that there was one who came in the form of a man and humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, that he would carry your sin and my sin, that we can be saved. You can have salvation. The sin problem that we've been focusing on for weeks is solved through Messiah alone. It's an exclusive gospel, my friend. There it is. There it is. Put your faith and trust in Christ alone today. I told you I had four applications. Let me just read them to you quickly. I think you'll see them simple to understand and maybe helpful for someone today. This came from my meditation about Joseph and Mary and, and Joseph's confusion and lack of clarity until he had his special revelation. Number one life application today. Learn to wait on God for clarity when dealing with confusing, life-altering circumstances. Learn to wait on God for clarity when dealing with confusing, life-altering circumstances. You know, when your world implodes or explodes and you don't know what to do and things happen, like to Joseph, that were absolutely not scripted, I absolutely had no idea, I did not see this coming, that is not a time to make decisions that alter your life direction. That is a time to be quiet and wait on God for him to reveal to you what he's doing. He's not out of control. He doesn't lose control. He's sovereign over the details of your life. And like Joseph, sit down, be quiet, go to sleep, and wait for God to speak to you. And here's where he's going to speak to you. Which is number two. Remember, number two, that the will of God is always found in the word of God. Didn't we see that with five special revelations? That it wasn't until God spoke that the will of God became clear. Don't go there, Joseph. Go over there. And he didn't know to go over there until God spoke to him. Now, Joseph, you come, but don't go there. Go over there. And God spoke to him in just the right way every time. The will of God is always right here in the Word of God. Number three. We had five prophetic explanations in our story today. In every single one of them, I would say, except for the very first one, the Isaiah 7 passage... You have absolutely no clue that it's about Jesus. But it came true exactly the way Matthew said. And this is a fulfillment of exactly what they said there. And there it is. So when Ramah was wailing and Rachel was wailing, the women of Jerusalem were wailing at Ramah, that was real wailing. That was real voices screaming out when little kids are being killed. Little boys are being slaughtered. see when god said a virgin shall conceive go ask joseph if that was a spiritualization or if that was a real virgin that was a real virgin she never knew a man that literally happened so every part of the prophecies of the first coming of christ were literal lesson number three practical application The literal fulfillment of prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ should be a wake up call about the literal nature of the prophecies concerning the second coming of Christ. See, so many people today, when it comes to the things in our Bible that are told about Christ's second coming, you see, what we've been studying today is the first coming, the baby in a manger. What we're longing for is when he's going to come back in the skies. Acts chapter 1, the same Jesus who went up among you is going to come back in exactly the same way he went up. He's coming back. That's not a spiritual thing. That's a literal thing. And when he says you're going to be caught up in the air to meet the Lord in a twinkling of an eye, why, what evidence do you have on any prophecy from the first coming that it wasn't literal so that when the second coming is talked about, we would spiritualize the whole second coming? I tell you, I think that that's one of the greatest arguments for a literal fulfillment of Christ filling the sky. His church being caught up in the air in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. The graves are going to open. All that stuff is still future. And I think it's going to happen exactly the way he said it's going to happen. Why would we believe otherwise? And finally, number four. This has to do with uh, Joseph and Mary where I reference waking her up in the middle of the night, going to Egypt, where they must have had lo- some talks, trying to figure out, Joseph, yes, I'm pregnant, I, it's of the Holy Spirit. I, I, Joseph, I know, I know, the angel told me, but I'm trying to figure this all out, and their conversation, and then trying to figure out where are we are going to live, because he took her to himself, but he didn't know her physically, and so they had a, a living arrangement, he already had a house, he got to put all this stuff together, but then they had to go to Egypt, they went to Egypt, they come up out of Egypt, they want to go back to Galilee, instead of going to Galilee, they go to Nazareth, They go and they're around, and things are. Do you realize that for the first couple years of our Lord's birth and growing up years, that Mary and Joseph were highly unsettled and it was a very difficult life? And so, number four is even God's most choice servants are not exempt from uncomfortable, confusing, and difficult seasons of life. I ask you, who is a more choice servant? Then Joseph and Mary. Precious Mary, Honorable Joseph, beautiful young people, used of God, living out His will. These are choice, hand-picked servants of the Lord, and for two years, Mary didn't have a kitchen to put her new tea towels out in. So, "Come on, Lord, I would just like to have a house." Even God's most choice servants are not exempt from uncomfortable, confusing, difficult seasons of life. Maybe some of those things resonate with you. Let's pray. Father, we look to you for wisdom and insight. May the Holy Spirit continue to use your word in us, both for practical lessons as well as a depth of understanding of what's happening in the scriptural account. Most of all, that we would know that you love us so much that you have this marvelous plan of sending Christ to be born of Mary, to go to the cross, to be our sin bearer, to rise again, sealing our justification that we could have heaven secured, be your children, sin forgiven, and a righteous standing in your presence. Father, would you make these things real to us? Um, In the fog and confusion of all of the Christmas nonsense in the week ahead, would, would you help us have Christ as our center? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.